Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts. Especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributor. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. It is lovely to be with you all. Always is. John 4. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was attracting and baptizing more disciples than John, though it was really not Jesus baptizing, but his disciples, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. This meant that he had to pass through Samaria. He stopped at Sychar, a town in Samaria near the tract of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, weary from the journey, came and sat by the well. It was around noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you please give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? He didn't say please. According to the text, uh, the disciples had gone off to the town to buy provisions. The Samaritan woman replied, You're a Jew. How can you ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink, since Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans? Jesus answered, if only you recognized God's gift and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink instead, and he would have given you living water. If you please, she challenged Jesus, you don't have a bucket and this well is deep. Where do you expect to get this living water? Surely you don't pretend to be greater than our ancestors, Leah and Rachel and Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it with their descendants and flocks? Jesus replied, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty. No, the water I give will become fountains within them, springing up to provide eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, give me this water so that I won't grow thirsty and have to keep coming all the way here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and then come back here. I don't have a husband, replied the woman. You're right, you don't have a husband, Jesus exclaimed. The fact is you've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So what you've said is quite true. I can see you're a prophet, answered the woman. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but your people claim that Jerusalem is the place where God ought to be worshipped. Jesus told her, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll worship Abba God neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you don't understand, we worship what we do understand. After all, salvation is from the Jewish people. Yet the hour is coming and is already here when real worshipers will worship Abba God in spirit and truth. Indeed, it is just such worshipers whom Abba God seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming and will tell us everything. Jesus replied, I who speak to you am the Messiah. The disciples, returning at this point, were shocked to find Jesus having a private conversation with a woman. But no one dared to ask, what do you want of him, or why are you talking with her? 
The woman then left her water jar and went off into the town. She said to the people, come and see who, come and see someone who told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? At that, everyone set out from town to meet Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus told them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. At this, the disciples said to one another, do you think someone has brought him something to eat? Jesus explained to them, doing the will of the one who sent me and bringing this work to completion is my food. Don't you have a saying, four months more and it will be harvest time? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe and ready for harvest. Reapers are already collecting their wages. They're gathering fruit for eternal life, and sower and reaper will rejoice together. So the saying is true, one person sows, another reaps. I have sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the work, and you've come upon the fruits of their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus on the strength of the woman's testimony that he told me everything I ever did. The result was that when these Samaritans came to Jesus, they begged him to stay with, him, with them for a while. So Jesus stayed there two days, and through his own spoken word, many more came to faith. They told the woman, no longer does our faith depend on your story. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this really is the savior of the world. This plays out like a movie scene in my mind. I love this. There are three sort of scenes within this text. Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, Jesus' interaction with his disciples, and the town folk's response to the woman. Since the bulk of the text consists of that conversation between Jesus and the woman, we'll start there. This is Jesus' longest conversation recorded in the New Testament, not just with a woman, but with anyone, male or female, educated or uneducated, rich or poor. What might that tell us about Jesus? What might that tell us about the woman? If you read this from an angle of competition, the conversation reads like a chess match, formal, full of strategy and one-upmanship. But read with a tone of playfulness, and then their conversation becomes repartee, witty banter, engaging, more like a scene from the West Wing, some of Aaron Sorkin's best dialogue. There are dynamics of parrying back and forth. Who is leaning in and when? Who is backing out and saving face? Who ups the ante? It starts innocuously enough when Jesus asks her for a drink. Her response, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? Isn't so much apologetic and deferential as it is, are you talking to me? Didn't anyone explain the rules to you? Her words imply, don't you know better? His response is, all right, let's talk about knowing better. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she replies, okay, Mr. Gift of God, you got no bucket. <laughs> and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And she goes on, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? See, both Samaritans and Jews claim Jacob as their forefather, but she's pointing out that this man is on her turf. You're in Samaria now, son. Jesus' response to her, your well serves its purpose, but I'm offering something better. 
Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman, with incredulity or sarcasm or a deep desire that must be masked with humor in her voice, oh, tell me all about it. Wouldn't that be nice? Not be thirsty and have to keep coming here to drink, draw water. Do you hear a tone of, do you think I'm an idiot? <laughs> At this point, lots of commentators say that Jesus changes the topic abruptly, but I disagree. I think he sees through her layers of self-protection. Isn't he still talking about thirst, about desire, when he invites, go call your husband and come back? Let's talk about wells that do not satisfy. She replies with a layer of truth under a layer of half-truth. I have no husband. I see her start a retreat, a withdrawal, a leaning back, almost flinching from his incisive words that prick the most tender, bruised part of her heart. Jesus becomes tender and names what she would rather keep hidden. Your words are true, but this is more true. You have known pain and loss. You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. The text doesn't say that she is an adulteress or that she has been repeatedly divorced or that she is an immoral woman. It doesn't say that she has been ostracized by the other women of the town, therefore she can't draw water in the early part of the day when it's cooler, when the rest of the woman would, would be there. She could be living the trauma of the riddle that the Sadducees pitched to Jesus about a woman whose husband died as did each successive brother who married her. Only in her case, her current man might not want to jinx himself by marrying her. Or her work might require that she draw water multiple times a day. We don't know her exact circumstances, but we do see her response. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. And what is the role of a prophet? To see, to name, expose, to call to a new way of life. But that's still too risky and uncomfortable, so she makes a last-ditch last appeal to their verbal jousting. Riddle me this. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Who's right? And Jesus says, you'll both be wrong soon. With a four-verse monologue that is as mysterious as it is poetic. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship Abba God must worship in spirit and true truth. And can I be perfectly honest? I've heard these words, these verses, all of my life, but I have never understood what they mean. And the commentaries I read weren't helpful to me here. I had no choice but to be baffled and sit with my bafflement. And my bafflement shifted what I heard from both the woman and Jesus. Because up through verse 24, I wanted to know, in capital letters, I wanted to know the answer. Then I realized how often that word appears in this whole text. The Greek verb oida, to know, to see, to know how to, to understand, it's a cognitive act. Oida appears six times in John chapter four. 
and can be inferred in more places throughout their conversation. Don't you know the rules if you knew the gift of God? Do you know where you are? Do you think I'm an idiot? Your words are true, but this is more true. Riddle me this. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. The woman's next words are, I know this. What if she is as baffled by his response as I am? I see her squinting at Jesus, trying to follow his poetic nonsense and shaking it off with the sense of, I don't know what you're talking about, but I do know this. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's like she's saying, okay, buddy, we've run our course. I've thrown at you everything I've got. You've brought up more than I know what to do with. I just wanted a straight answer about worship, and now it appears that one of us is out of our depth. I'm going to trust the Messiah with this. And his response to her is not a formal, I am he. (laughs) I think, I hear, in keeping with the playful, all-in nature of their conversation, Jesus is thrilled. I see him break into a grin, thinking, "At a girl, you get it and saying, that's me, I know him, that's me, you get it. It's not about what you know, what you would argue about, the layers of truth and layers of self-protection. The point is knowing me, trusting me. Isn't this fun? This is where the text changes gears. In verse 27, the disciples return, but no one says anything. Jesus and the woman are clearly in the middle of something, having a moment. It's probably awkward. And she takes off running back to town. We'll come back to her in a minute. The disciples urge Jesus to eat. He responds, I have food to eat that you do not know about. There it is again, that verb, oida, to know. He's implying you think you know, but you don't. They're confused, wondering if someone might have brought him food, so Jesus spells it out for them. I'm nourished by something better than a meal. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete God's work. And that's what I was just doing in talking with the woman that you all gave the side eye. Take another look around you. People are ready to hear about God's way. What Jesus had been saying to the woman earlier about how the Father seeks and desires worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, she became that sort of worshiper in her interaction with Jesus, her experience of Jesus. She's not meek, mousy, submissive, or avoiding scorn. She's a prosecuting attorney, intelligent, curious, unrelenting, inquisitive, brave. She flung all her spirit and all her truth at Christ. He caught it and threw it right back. And they parried and danced, and Christ felt full. Their interaction was better than a meal. Her faith enacted in their conversation becomes for him the better food. His purpose of doing God's will was being fulfilled. And so he tells his disciples, talking about food and talking about harvest, that they can experience this fullness, this goodness, in verse 36, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. This work is good. God's work will nourish you and enrich others. Back to the woman. She has already started doing this work herself. She's en route back to town. She has become unselfconscious, announcing to the community that somebody knows her story, who might just be the Messiah, that they should come and see for themselves. 
And if she had cause to be ashamed previously, she's not ashamed anymore. She's proclaiming, testifying, inviting them. Maybe she doesn't think they'll take her at her word. Maybe she knows that this man must be experienced firsthand to be understood. For many of the Samaritans from that city, her word was enough. They believed in him and they headed out to meet him. They invited Jesus to stay with them and in the end, they tell the woman it was not only her word, but now that they have heard for themselves, they know, there it is again, that verb oida, that this is truly the savior of the world. Do you know Jesus in your guts? Have you dived into a conversation with a stranger not knowing the outcome and found yourself spun around dancing? Have you let Jesus burn through your layers of what you know and what you don't know? Through the layers you use to protect yourself from being hurt again? Have you let Jesus see you at your most vulnerable? And have you heard Jesus name you as lovable? Do you know that Jesus delights in you? Feels full from spending time with you? If any of those answers are yes, what came next? If any of those answers were no, what would be different if it did? It started with a simple question, will you... Get me water, give me a drink. God moving toward humanity, God taking the first step. What seemingly innocuous question might God be asking you these days? Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. We're really happy that so many of you are finding it to be helpful and as a way to stay connected with what's going on with us here at West Hills Friends. If you'd like to stay connected with us in other ways, we have a couple options for you. You can check out our website. It's westhillsfriends.org. There you'll find some more information about who we are as a community. You can also follow us on Facebook. We have a Facebook account by just searching for West Hills Friends. You can also follow us on Instagram. We have a Instagram account with the name West Hills Friends. So we hope that you'll get connected with us in other ways. And again, thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast.